Race matters. 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 I'd like to acknowledge that we are broadcasting on unceded Gadigal land. This land has been in the hands of generations of Gadigal custodians for thousands of years before us, and it will continue to be in their hands long after us. It's a meeting place for sharing knowledge, stories and song, and we're privileged to be part of that storytelling today and every day at FBI Radio. I pay my respects to Gadigal elders past and present, We're broadcasting from Redfern right now, the birthplace of black theatre in this country, and a site for resistance and resilience for First Nations peoples. We honour this in all the work we do and carry this well into our conversation today. You're listening to Race Matters. This is a show that explores the values and complexities of race, culture and identity. And today we're asking, how do we explore those values and complexities through technology? And even further, can we begin to understand anti-racist forms of storytelling and resistance as technology in and of themselves? The tech we use impacts our lives. They aren't neutral objects, but can have particular worldviews baked into the very operation of them. It can be overwhelming to begin to challenge those cultural biases when a lot of the mainstream conversation on technology, especially right now, is wrapped up in speculation or paranoia. How do we make sense of all of this? On today's show, we're going to unpack some of those questions with a very special guest host and guest producer. Joining me today as co-host is a voice that you might be familiar with, Sarita Hersey. Maybe you've heard her on FBI platforming some of this city's best local music or illuminating a dance floor with her precise and hypnotic mixing. But what you might not know is that Sarita is also dedicated to some of the questions I asked at the top of this show. Through her writing and research, her work has spanned healthcare, accessibility and investigating trust calibration for human agent collaboration. At the heart of a lot of her research and interests is the focus on the integration of humans and technology. Dr. Sarita Hassi, thank you so much for joining Race Matters. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure to be invited on for the show. Um, we're going to get a little bit more into what you got to explore and who you got to talk to earlier this week. Um, but at the top of the show, I mentioned that this is a show that explores race, culture and identity. When we're thinking through all of that and the intersection of technology, why do you think we need to make this knowledge more available on a show like this? I think generally this type of information, it's important to be accessible and it's important to be aware, to be informed in order to take hold uh, and be empowered in your decision making as a user. I mean... I think we go into it a little bit, but the idea that everyone is engaging with technology all of the time, whether that's their own decision or whether it's a decision made for them, it's important to know what that engagement looks like and 
also maybe have an idea of what might be happening behind the scenes so you can be empowered to make decisions for yourself. Those ideas of empowerment and gaining knowledge like definitely emerge in today's chat that you're going to hear um, and that leads us to the conversation that you got to have where you spoke to Dr. Tao Fan. What kind of drew you to her work and what you kind of gleaned from the conversation you had? Her work in and of itself is, I think, really interesting. She's within a research field that's often focused on technology, right? She is in this section of it that is looking at how are these points of technologies actually implemented into society and what are the flow on effects there? Unfortunately, it's a very underfunded, very underrepresented voice within the span of what is technology and an important voice. It's important to have these conversations. It's important to shed light on this type of research and these types of researches. It was a really valuable conversation for me to have and for me to learn from. And I'm excited to look at Tao's process and look at Tao's work moving forward as well. On the other side, we'll be hearing from Dr. Tao Fan. She's a feminist technoscience researcher who specializes in the study of gender and race and algorithmic culture. Um, But beyond that is really invested in, I guess, the tangible ways in which we're interacting with technology and questioning the powers that are embedded within it and how to not take that for granted. AI, machine learning, big data, they're terms that are becoming more of, you know, part of the household dialogue. I mean, if we're looking back on recent news, ChatGPT, it's kind of revolutionising education and work. Uh, Earlier this year within Australia, there were statewide emergency meetings around the banning of technology in public schools, but not so in private schools, uh, with draft frameworks that are now being considered to be implemented in the future. We also have the American Actors Union, who have joined the Writers Guild in America as part of, uh, you know, larger strikes um, that inherently are not reported on. They're linked to AI. Um, so acknowledging this storm of all of these discourses in these areas, to me at least, it seems like these concepts are all, or all have this common thread of increasing an equity gap. So really the push for consideration often seems to be coming from bottom-up community rather than top-down from large corporations or governing bodies. Um, And I think this is a great way of setting the scene when we're talking about the real-world impacts of data and the technologies that are created to make use of data. And grounding the conversation today in this, I wanted to open the discussion with you first by asking you use the term feminist technoscience as an identifier for your work Uh, Could you elaborate on what this means and how do you see this relating to race? Yeah, thank you so much, Sarita. Uh, So feminist technoscience is also sometimes called feminist science and technology studies or or, or feminist STS. Um, It's also sometimes called um, feminist social studies of science. So in a nutshell, it's it's a field of feminist research that treats science and scientific knowledge as objects of study. So it asks questions like, you know, what counts as scientific knowledge and why, who is given authority in these important knowledge-making communities and who isn't, 
And, and what is the role of science and technology in actively constituting categories like gender, race, ability, class and nation? And I think feminist technoscience has, has a really strong tradition at looking at histories of, of race and race-making technologies. So it really denaturalizes the idea of race as like a given, a given fact of the body, for example, and looks instead to model that sort of, to model that divide, I guess, between, between races as a matter of as a matter of fact and a matter of bodies and, and biology and race as a cultural phenomenon. It, it kind of looks at how technologies of sensing and determining and classifying bodies are themselves like cultural products and made in cultural communities um, and how that then sort of like the social and cultural and political aspects of determining like what then becomes the social fact of race. Yeah, very topical, extremely exciting. I mean, you're talking about this concept of race as a property that algorithms are really determining for us, uh, regardless of our true understanding or personal identity. Um, Could you maybe speak to how you see the possible flow and effects of this abstraction or this kind of black box categorization? Yeah, totally. So, I mean, um, I've been really, really interested in the ways in which platforms um, racially classify users for the purposes of things like targeted advertising. Um, so I've written on things like the way Facebook, um, I, between the years like 2016 to 2020, Facebook uh, was racially classifying its users um, into categories they called ethnic affinity, ethnic affinity categories, right? Um, and these were like US, this is mostly for people living in the US, but US Hispanic, Asian American or African American. Um, and they got in trouble for doing this because they were letting their advertisers uh, target users based on those categories. So you could be like, oh, I want people who are African-American, US, Hispanic or Asian-American to see these particular ads. But you could also exclude based on those categories. Um, and so the examples were things like ads for housing or ads for scholarships and education and being like, do not show these to people who are African-American, US, Hispanic or Asian-American, what is sort of like clear violations of things like the US um, Housing Act. But the things that me and my colleague uh, Scott Walk were super interested in when we were writing about uh, that case is that Facebook doesn't ask users to classify themselves according to race or identify themselves according to race. Instead, they infer race based on your behavioural data. Right. So essentially you're being placed into these forms of like racial classification, whether you know it or not, um, and you're being acted upon whether you know it or not which is a really strange and different way of like doing race than the ways we've done race previously. Um, I mean, the most obvious being that it's like, it's, these are really dynamic categories that change with every new piece of behavioral data that you put into it, which goes against these sort of like, I don't know, the tyranny of the fixity of race um, when it's determined otherwise. But then also it's things like the body as the original signifier of race, either through through phenotype or, or genotype, you know, the, the colour of your skin, the way your hair looks, or um, the kind of genomic expressions of things going on, um, the, the invisible parts of the body. Yeah, and that's all thrown away, completely indifferent in these, like, uh, data-driven regimes. I guess the idea of a black box model is that you have um, within machine learning, you are collecting lots of data, right? And they're often put into some type of algorithm, it's processed and then output 
the output comes out. So, for example, if there was a digital diagnostic system, maybe um, there would be an X-ray that you're looking for a particular type of cancer for. The visual imagery of that X-ray is fed into this machine learning model and an output is, yes, there is cancer or no, there is no cancer. What is happening within that model itself? Uh, the term black box model indicates that we have no clar clarity around it, no clarification around what's going on in the middle there. Um, there are ways of reverse engineering black box models to figure out the decision making of that model. And there are other models that are being built to incorporate decision making within them. But more often than not, people will fall back on the use of a black box model within within their uh, research purposes or within their output purposes, just because it's easier and you don't need to put in further time to reverse engineer what you're doing to explain it. It's also why there's such a big turn in computer science and AI ethics research towards things like explainability and transparency, um, because those are things that are that are denied at the moment inside of, you know, as a result of, of what Sarut is really accurately, I think, describing as black box models. The only thing I would um, add to this is that there are lots of reasons why we can't, calling it a black box is like quite um, misleading because it sounds like you can just open it up and look inside and see what's going on. The, the, the literal issue is that they're operating at such degrees of complexity that we do not know. We do not know why they make decisions. We do not know um, what inferences are being drawn upon. We do not know what feature forms of feature extraction are happening. Like these are not actually explainable. Um, and then there's also the additional layer of like trade secret laws in which, um, so like, you know, Google is not going to tell you how their page rank algorithm works because that's, that's the way they make money. Um, so it's the un, it's it's the all the conditions that create the unknowability of an outcome from an algorithmic system. Yeah, it's really interesting that you say that because it's almost from this business perspective, right? We're being uh, made into an unidentifiable identifier, uh, this weird thing that's abstracted. We don't really have much identity. Um, but moving it maybe towards the individual in themselves and forward thinking in the future. Do you have any idea or any comments on what you think this might mean for our own personal understanding of racial identity? Do you see this methodology as novel as it is and, you know, being used by big corporations? Do you see it kind of having a flow on effect into culture, into society, into our everyday lives? Uh, I mean, yeah, totally. I mean, one of the main things I suppose, I mean, the, the thing about businesses, like enacting, like, you know, being the ones who enact race, I suppose the one thing to say is there is like already a very long history of that. And so far as like racial capitalism and the forms of like differentiation for the purposes of like labeling somebody's as like profitable and so on, like that's already happening inside of a long history of like capitalism and racial capitalism. In terms of the, the contemporary moment, um, I think what's really interesting is that it really denies forms of like uh, existing forms of resistance that we've been able to enact so far. So I think it's really difficult to like establish a community of solidarity under these conditions by which like a black box algorithm operating within like a proprietary platform system makes a judgment 
uh, or makes a classificatory judgment and then it acts upon it in a discriminatory manner. Like, you know, you're not placed next to the people with the, with who that is also happening. So you don't even know it's happening and then you don't even know who else it's happening to. And so those usually what we'd be able to do is to like form communities of solidarity uh, to, to resist against, but that is just like not an available tool to us. You know, and it's like it's really difficult to keep up with the pace of dynamic dynamic classification. Classifications that are being assessed and reassessed with every new piece of behavioral data, you know. How do we resist a category we don't even know we've been placed within? All those nice things about race, like if you want to call them nice things about race, things like relating to others and talking to others. Yeah, community that you can like form to say like all these like, you know, common things, um, you know, that's that's just not available to you under these circumstances. Mm, I mean, you were talking about uh, essentially like advocating against a process that's passive. You know, how do we do that? What is the process? I mean, this data is being collected and used outside of our perception and we're interacting with this technology on a daily basis. I think a lot of the time, you know, the echoing voice just says, put the phone down, read your privacy policy, all of these things. But these technologies are now so ingrained within our life, whether they're our technologies or not. Um, I mean, I was going to throw a question out about whether you believe there are novel tools that people can engage with that are beyond the classic traditional tools of resistance. Like, is there any movement forward or any type of insight that a person can have to take a bit more control over what is a passive process? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think it's a really good question, a really difficult question. Um, (laughs) No, but I mean, um, I'm glad you've asked it. I mean, mostly the thing that I see is that I think like it pushes people who are invested in racial justice. Uh, it, It means um we need to understand these systems much more like it requires a certain amount of um literacy and engagement and not talking about ai as like one large homogenous thing like oh ai is coming for us or ai is doing this but actually engaging with like no what are the specific actors involved it's not just any platform it's like facebook (laughs) it's not just any system it's like um a, a a personalization targeted advertising machine learning system uh, and so like coming to grips with the specificities of those things I think really gives us much more in terms of like conceptual tools so like the language we can use to express um, uh, and rally around uh, and so on but also like literal sort of actual tools so like I mean uh, I know a lot of a lot of techniques like you know machine learning techniques for the purposes of like classification are developed by these like large platforms and businesses and so on but there is nothing also stopping you from like uh co-opting those techniques to do the same thing to like analyze and you see lots of great work particularly with in in like the art world particularly um uh, within these like communities of resistance who are able to like use these tools to um turn them back on the people who are like doing violence and oppressing them i'm thinking in particular of um the group forensic architecture by Isle Weisman, um, but he's used his with his team, um, Arun Goldsmith. They've done things like training and machine learning, like object recognition system to recognize tear gas canisters, and then running them over footage uh, collected by activists to 
to um, evidence the use of tear gassing of protesters. Oh, amazing. Also, I really, yeah, as you said, a really great way to co-opt what is already being put out there into the public domain for a point of activism. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And liquid architecture. Um, so there's a group called Machine Listening um, and that's a, that's a collective of like um, legal scholars and artists and curators. They've made a tool called a, a word processor that lets you look behind the curtain uh, at the ways in which automatic speech recognition tools classify language. In terms of race, that's a massive thing because often these models are based on one type of language or one type of uh, presentation of language as well. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I think anybody who has like a non-Anglo name will be able to like <laughs> immediately recognize the like, you know, every time you try and type your name into a thing, it's like squiggly red line that says this is not a word, um, you know, that like kind of is like denying that this is like a legitimate like. Yeah, bane of our existence. Yeah, exactly. From, from the get-go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but that's, so the tool that they've used is something that you can like type things into or like, you know, how to automatic speech recognition tools like recognize on a, on a computational level, like what kind of metadata is attached to the words that you, you use, like how it transcribes it into words, how it transcribes audio into words. Um, and then you're able to sort of go in and sort of like, oh, you can see from the perspective of the machine that it's it's not just an ideological form of like non-understanding. It's like actually like these statistical models are just not trained on data that is like optimised where you are the norm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I know that you had first-hand experience utilising that tool with your um, listening to misrecognition and the idea of, uh, I think within that, uh, it was presented in a liquid architecture discussion or lecture you gave for them. There was this idea of misrecognition as a form of resistance, the space between what is identifiable. And I mean, this really kind of takes us onto the idea of uh if we, if our data, if our digital footprint, if who we are online or uh, is able to be categorised in a passive way, then where can we exist or where can we resist outside of that? And I thought, yeah, it was a really novel idea and a really exciting idea for me to hear you present on this idea of misrecognition as a form of resistance. Uh, did you want to speak a bit to that? Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, that talk that I gave really was about sort of refusing machine recognition. Mm. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so this word processor tool that's made by this particular um, machine listening team. So one of the things that they did was to invite all kinds of different people, like artists, writers, different kinds of thinkers, to just play with and tinker with it and to see what they could do in terms of like analysing what's happening to language in this current computational moment which I think is like super important especially in the age of like chat GPT and yada 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 um, and all the um, all the problems with with those kinds of systems um, and so one of the things that I did was that I have like a little archive of interviews that I had done with my family where we switch we do a lot of code switching between Vietnamese and English um, uh, and just sort of fed it through this tool to see how it would to see how machines hear um bad english essentially right um or racialized english right uh it was a really fun experiment because i got to sort of see like oh right it like you know it doesn't recognize like my name as a noun or it doesn't recognize like it can't hear particular vietnamese words but it also um 
if there's an English word that follows a Vietnamese word, it won't recognise it either because it's all about statistical relations. It's not just can it hear the word dog. It's like it only recognises the word dog if it's placed within a statistical relation in like um, the structure of a sentence. Yeah, so like within the context of an English sentence, whereas that's not the identity and that's not often the lived experience of many people from different cultural, racial backgrounds. Exactly, exactly, yeah. It shows you sort of what becomes the basis for like like a mathematical relationship to language, essentially. It's a different kind of misrecognition and racism, you know. There's the forms of racism that you encounter uh, because there is, like, an ideology of which, you know, you are racially inferior and, some and like, you know, like a preserving a, a white nationalist state uh, and, and viewing other bodies as, like, corrupting that particular imagined state or imagined community. Um, there's like a real, that kind of racism. But the racism that comes through these systems is in some ways different because it's kind of devoid of those things. It, it, it is completely indifferent to these kinds of categories. Um, um, it's, it's, it's the relationship to a number, you know, it's the probability, it's the probability of certain words coming up which um, has racist effects because you still feel like misrecognized and placed in a position of not belonging and feeling like alienated and disenfranchised. It's the same, same racist effects, but it's operating through a completely different racialized like technique. Yeah, a new lens, new technique, and one so exclusively tied to this novel technology that's being released and often not considered on, as you say, the way that it's impacting society and the way we're interacting with this technology. that you're uh, reflecting this in on people from bottom up. How can we engage with this technology? How can we engage with counter forms of activism? Even the discussion of it through art and co-opting current forms of technology that are released. I think it's an interesting thing here to maybe touch on. People often fall back on, and I've heard this a lot, the role of regulation. Everything will be okay as long as this technology is regulated, everything will be okay if we can fall back on this. I think the things that we've been discussing out about so far, they exist outside of that role of regulation. So I kind of wanted to ask you, what is the role of regulation in your eyes? Do you see there, or do you see there being value? Do you see it being separate to what we've been discussing currently? Yeah. Oh God, that's a really hard question. Um, um, you know, I mean, I'm no lawyer uh, and I'm no sort of policy specialist. Uh, I come from like a background in critical theory and the humanities where it's much more about like ways of articulating new questions instead of like 
ways how we should answer them. I see a lot of challenges for regulation, uh, mostly because of the, the pace that regulation takes next to the pace of like advancement and what's happening. Um, and I think these companies are like very wily and very good at forms of capture, like pre, either preemptive regulatory capture in which they say, you know, we're really good at regulating ourselves. Look at all of our AI ethics principles we've put forward that makes us good guys, even though there's no formal body to like enforce in those principles. Um, uh, or they're just really, really good at working around the frameworks. So I'm thinking about, I've done a little bit of work um, looking at commercial drone delivery. So, uh, so in Australia, I'm not sure if if, if many people know, but Australia has the world's largest commercial drone delivery trials, Canberra, as well as uh, in a place in Queensland called Logan, just outside of Brisbane, which is um, incredibly low socioeconomic, uh, incredibly high rates of youth crime, incredibly high rates of youth unemployment. And I don't think it's a it's no um, coincidence that like one of the world's largest tech corporations has like landed in one of the biggest disadvantaged communities in like urban in Australia <laughs> um, to do things like refining their technologies. So um, one of the things that they do, so okay, there's all these like um, laws uh, around flying drones over neighbourhoods. Um, so there's things like you have to have like one drone within like one drone per pilot. You need to have visual line of sight. You need you can't fly over people's backyards. Um, uh, those kinds of things. And these commercial drones, commercial drones for drone delivery, they break all those rules, right? It's like one pilot per fifteen drones. It's like. Um, no visual line of sight whatsoever. These are completely autonomous drones. They just fly off and do their, their deliveries um, and they fly over everyone's backyards all the time. And so there's lots of stuff around privacy and people are really freaked out about like what's the what's this drone looking into my backyard? What's with this drone like that can see into my window? But um, Google are really good at dealing with the privacy thing because they're just like, oh, there's no cameras on the drones and there aren't. There's only object recognition systems, which technically aren't taking photos. They're only monitoring like the lowest grade quality images um, just in case something goes wrong because the kinds of mapping systems that these drones use um, aren't based on, on like vi visual navigation. They're based on like GPS type stuff. But this is kind of speaking to what we've been discussing this whole uh, conversation, which is, this information is visual, but not to the way that we know it. It's still categorization. It's an abstraction of something that we understand and what we know. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's what um, it's what Adrian McKenzie and Anna Munster call invisual, invisual images, um, where images like operate in a completely different economy to like the semiotic forms of images that we're used to seeing. Uh, and now they do different kinds of operational work inside of these like data economies. So Google are able to do this like complete like subversion of like privacy stuff because they're like, this is not an image. You know, they've like preemptively anticipated the privacy concerns for being like, we have no cameras on the thing. And so they can just do whatever they want because, you know, there's no way around that. Then they, They're very good at um, circumventing the regulatory and policy concerns. Yeah. And especially, you know, if you're working on novel technology, if you're working on novel things, as long as there's a paradigm that you have to adhere to, there's a way that that novelty can be moved to circumnavigate it.
Yeah, I mean, these guys are kings in novelty. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, they're so good at innovating, the, like, their way out of a, of a problem. Like, with the racial classification thing uh, with Facebook, I mean, they were just like, okay, we'll just stop that and we'll just let, we'll just do, we just do other forms of classification instead. But, like, uh, race is still reconstructed and, like, reemerges through proxy variables. So it's just like, oh, you're not allowed to use race as an explicit variable when determining an outcome for something. Um, and so they're like, we don't, use, we don't use race, it's fine. But race still is able to reemerge through things like IP address and language use. Yeah, who else is in your network? Um, and so you have, like, this, this is something I've been really, like, interested in is, like, the reconstruction of race by proxies. Um, and as a way of continuing the work of racial profiling without calling it racial profiling. But I think that that discussion really brings on to an interesting point, which is, you know, there are communities that are going through this, um, that are having these types of privacy violations or whether they're violations or not, you know, they're, they're all going through this. And I think it would be interesting to put to you how how do you think that we should be forming communities of solidarity under these conditions? I mean, they're often outside of our control, but you spoke about the idea of becoming more, it seemed, more informed about what's happening. Uh, could you speak to, yeah, movement forward? How do we, how do we band together in this space? I think there comes a point where you do need to sort of um, confront the forms of personalization that are happening to you. The thing about personalization is it's never really about you as an individual. It's about your like your your patterns of behavior and how they match with other people's patterns of behavior, um, and that the sort of risk assessment that are made uh, based on the kinds of actions that you take uh, and the actions of the people around you take because those form the risk profiles for things like um, insurance claims and so on. Uh, and so I suppose there really is, um, there is there is sort of advocacy at a, like a number of different levels. I know I, I, know I said it like regulation is, is difficult, but we really must insist that there are um, solid frameworks and the regulators should turn their attention to this. Uh, but that should happen in many ways through things like the better funding of universities and institutions that have like uh, critical stances towards these things. Because at the moment, what we have is like a brutal withdrawing of funding for public universities uh, and which creates a research environment that turns to industry as the main way to fund critical research. But there are just some questions you cannot ask within those structures of funding. The Googles, the Microsofts, the Amazon um, Web Service, AWS, like they are the main funders for a lot of AI ethics, what you might call AI ethics research, which is like completely perverse. You know, it talks to those those positions of like co-option and capture that I was talking about before. Um, there are just some questions that you cannot ask there. So I suppose like I don't know if there's a lot you can do as an individual um, in terms of like, um, you know, re resisting and so on, because sometimes we are not placed in a position when we can like meaningfully refuse. You know, if your university is bought into the Google Suite system, you can't just like not check your emails. <laughs> yeah, you need to engage with it. And that's kind of the idea of like, there is all of these decisions being made and your engagement with these technologies are not always 
your own. They're not always your decision. Sometimes you just need to know or live within it and know what you can do uh, outside of that to situate yourself in a in a better in a better place moving forward yeah totally and I mean I guess I'm just very much I guess the point I'm trying to make there is that it's like an insistence that turns to the structure and reforming the structure and not just reforming the individual like I said before as well that it's just like oh critical race scholars is we need to become more um uh literate around these things like yes but also we can't do that without broader structures that will give us time and space and money uh, resources to like learn well like you cannot do that if you're like scraping together a living wage for example um, it's much easier to do inside of a system that values that kind of work and values your voice. Yeah, or even I think having researchers fight each other to the death for a measly amount of money that is not viable to run research. Oh, absolutely. I mean, like, these conditions of insecurity and precarity are completely, like, doing deranged things to research cultures and researchers individually as well. I mean, like, creating these, like, harsh competitive environments in which, like, you know, the top grant for early career researchers has, like, a 15% success rate is completely fucked. Yeah, the expectation that that's what you will get to be successful. Yeah, which is a false promise, a completely false promise. But all that does is like that kind of desperation, it just means people don't propose projects from the heart and that they feel are important anymore. It means they propose projects that they think might get them funded, which is a whole different question in the context of like a conservative government, for example, that was like, um, you know, a minister who was individually vetoing projects even after it had made it through you know, um, College of Experts approval. I mean, that is perverse. Yep. Yep. Or I saw that there was something similar about projects being given funding before funding decisions were made. Like uh, just the, the, it's a whole big discussion and maybe for another time, I think I may swing this back to a more positive point and lead us to a final kind of question, which is, I mean, we've been discussing uh, how, people can become more engaged with this. And I actually know that you have an event coming up over in Melbourne um, that people can become engaged and have these conversations in. Uh, So on Saturday, October 14th, I'm going to be co-hosting what we're calling a study in on AI, race and art um, with some very good colleagues of mine, Andrew Brooks, who's based at um, Union New South Wales and who also is um, half of the art collective called Snack Syndicate with Astrid Lorange. Um, And I know Andrew's been a guest on this program. Uh, And as well as Joel Stern, um, who is used to be the artistic director of Liquid Architecture and is now based at RMIT um, and is one of the people behind the machine listening group um, who we spoke about briefly before. So the three of us are teaming up um, with COVA, the Centre of Visual Art based at University of Melbourne, VCA, as well as the ARC Centre of Excellence for Automated Decision Making and Society to host a, a, a whole day of study, <laughs> a whole day of, of what we're calling a study in, so a temporary school that's going to interrogate AI and race. Um, and we're going to try and develop new methods and approaches to study race that draw and feed from artistic methods and strategies. And really that um, 
that begins with the proposition that the challenge of understanding race in this contemporary moment really requires responses that are equal parts creative, critical, technical and collective. So we're going to be um, bringing together writers, thinkers, artists, anybody really uh, who is interested in the question of and the intersections of AI, race and art today. Um, for a, for a, for a day of structured discussions and speculative experimentation and learning, um, where we're going to be looking at questions like how a body is classified, recognised, and operationalised by AI and machine learning and systems that are situated within colonial and imperial histories and contexts. We want to ask, you know, how are group-based differentials, so things like race, gender, sexuality, how are these things shaped by data-driven technologies and AI systems? Um, and how do these technologies move us beyond understanding race as either purely biological or purely cultural? Um, so the, the EOIs for that open on the 10th of August. Uh, they'll be on the Art in Australia website. It's going to be completely free to attend and we'll also have bursaries to support people to come, either to pay for travel or for, to cover other kinds of care that people need to do um, that the allies would not be able to attend without a little bit of assistance. That's all for Race Matters this week. I'm Sarita Hersey. I'm Sharika Halleludin. Sarita, thank you so much for stepping onto the mic for the first time with Race Matters and facilitating such an enthralling chat with Dr. Taofan. And I'm sure I'm not the only person who feels like you really work together to demystify a lot of these quite nefarious structures um, of these like online infrastructures and also helping us detangle them from the kind of confusing, often like colonial and racist powers that exist within them. If you want to listen back to that chat and learn more about the event that Tao is co-hosting with Andrew Brooks and Joel Stern, we have left all of the details in our show notes. You can listen back to episodes of Race Matters at fbiradio.com slash race matters. Bye. Bye. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters.